Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt and we thank you for joining us. This week, a special day, a new president of the United States, and we're joined by two very special guests. One of the most distinguished government officials of all times, Leon Panetta, uh, who was in the White House, at the Pentagon, the CIA, and Congress, uh, and then Walter Dellinger, the Duke Law School professor emeritus and legal mastermind. They'll talk about Joe Biden and the new start, and they'll talk about what faces Donald Trump. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by Fundrise, Blinkist, and Super Lucky. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes, and we thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us. Remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, President Biden, boy, it makes us all feel so much better already. 46th President of the United States. Uh, I watched that entire inaugural. It was good speech. There was no soaring rhetoric. No, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. No, the torch has been passed. But it was perfect for the moment. Joe Biden may be also perfect for the moment. I thought everything was pitch perfect up at the Capitol today. I've been to six inaugurals, James, and I didn't go to this one. This is, you couldn't. It was so different. But sitting at home, my wife was in at the television studio. I was alone, and I will tell you, I cried on several occasions. The history of a black woman of Asian descent, as you know, I have a daughter from Asia, becoming vice president, so many historical moments flash before me of things that I have covered and watched. It really was emotional. Lady Gaga, I'm not a huge Lady Gaga fan, but Lady Gaga singing Woody Guthrie's Great, This Land is Your Land, and the national anthem pointing to the Capitol, which was just under siege only two weeks ago. That brought a few more tears. And that marvelous young poet, 22 years old, uh, added some more. There are enormous challenges ahead. In some ways, it's more than Obama faced in 2009, and maybe he's doing his FDR in 1993, but in a very challenging environment. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris more than rose to the occasion today. Well, I I, I agree. I, I thought it was, I think they got the pitch just right. It wasn't a given that they were going to be able to pull this off. And I thought his speech was very good. And I, I was mortified that he would go on forever. And he did not. Uh, the two little musical selections I, I want to talk about a little bit. First is you point out this land is your land. Just so people understand, that is the anthem of socialist America. Right. Woody Guthrie. <laughs> Woody Guthrie's museum is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it's being uh, the George Kaiser, guys, actually a, a, a big Democratic, the Democratic donor. And now he's got Bob Dylan's papers also going to be in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So uh, the other selection that I that really swells my heart was Garth Brooks doing Amazing Grace. I mean, I, I teach Amazing Grace. That was the anthem of the British anti-slave trade movement, which I think is the greatest song ever written in the English language. And it, it was so appropriate because it's such such a cleansing, redemptive song. And I, I and I thought the fact that Garth Brooks sang it was was just right right on the money. Uh, I, I doubt if Lou Dobbs is smart enough to figure out <laughs> this land. 
<laughs> it's a great song, by the way. I always play it. For oh, it's class. a wonderful. It was Robert Kennedy's theme song too in 1968. Right. It, 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 what he lived to hate it, old man Trump. He lived in Trump's building. He wrote like a song. I think about what a awful person that Fred Trump was. That that's a that's a real interesting history from Woody and Fred Trump and a, a, a lot of that kind of stuff. It, it, it's a fascinating, but I thought those those two songs really had to, uh, to somebody who teaches emotion. Uh, those are two of the great emotional songs of that I can think of, honestly. I, I was very you know, I, I agree. And I, when you're old guys like we are, you, you have a lot of flashbacks. And I, I must tell you, I went to I, I went back to 1972 when I went up with Ted Kennedy to cover. I was covering him, and he was campaigning for this young 29 year old kid who had no chance. And then I found the backstory that Biden had gone to see a guy named Norty Hoffman. Norty Hoffman was an All American for Newt Rockney, and he ran the Senate campaign committee. And this 29 year old kid came down. Norty Hoffman said, "You know, you can't win for Christ's sake." And and Joe Biden stood up and said, "I don't have to take crap from people like you." And started to walk out of the room, and Norty followed him and said, "Okay, you got guts, kid. We'll support you." And Biden said, "I want Kennedy up there because we're going to become the Kennedys of Delaware." That was sort of silly back then. You know what? They have become the Kennedys of Delaware. This is the most resilient guy uh, I have ever seen in politics, and I've seen a bunch of resilient people. And this is a point from Jim Fallows today: for a guy who, who in his formative years, in his early years, was a stutterer, had to overcome that. It was terribly difficult. To give an eloquent 20-minute inaugural speech, boy, it tells you a lot about Joe Biden. Yeah, well, look, he's going to need to do some great things, and I, I, I hope he – I think, I think he's prepared for this job, and, and but it's going to be really, really, really hard. And yeah. Uh, I, I, I hope – I'm just out of I'm so right now, it's just so, like a – I can't tell you, it's just like I've been living with this giant infected tooth in my mouth. and you know, oh. It, oh. It's gone. It, that, that, that. Absolutely. Every morning you wake up feeling, you know, you you won't feel as uh, you're. Pre- I, I I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and I must tell you, one of the great things that can be celebrated there is that the most disgraced alum of that university has been replaced by a distinguished Penn professor, Joe Biden. And uh, so it's good for the country. It's good for all of us. It's good for Penn. Where did Biden go to college? University of Delaware. The Blue Hens. He's a Blue Hen. Yeah. Steve Bannon went to Harvard, Georgetown. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you said Dad went to Harvard, didn't he? He tried to talk to the Penn kids about Trump. They just go ballistic. Now you got to live with what you got. David Duke went to LSU. What can I say? Hey, James, there's no one who better understands what a new administration faces as well as Leon Panetta. After a distinguished service in Congress, 16 years, I actually followed a short stint in the Republican Justice Department. He started with a Republican senator, but he then he then saw the light. He was OMB director and chief of staff for Bill Clinton. He headed the CIA and the Pentagon for Barack Obama, and he knows Joe Biden well. We amateurs have weighed in on the inaugural address you're the pro, Leon. What did you think? I I thought it was what I expected from Joe Biden, which was a, a sermon on unity. Uh, you know, he, he knows he's got to try to bring this country together. He knows that's his biggest challenge. Uh, 
as you know, uh, as well as I do, if he can't govern, if he can't break the dysfunction in Washington, uh, and if uh, if all we wind up with is four more years of gridlock, uh, then his presidency is, is going to fail. So he has got to find ways to try to bring people together and to unify the country. And I think I think his speech hit the right tone. It hit. It had the right spirit. It was something that was very refreshing compared to the guy who just wound up in Florida. Boy, that's for sure, Leon. When when he's he's in the Oval Office now, describe what, what you would guess. What, what what's your sense of what is uh, the humans' emotions, the hopes, even the apprehensions? I mean, for all of his experience, it still must be an awesome thing to walk in there and say, "I am the Commander in Chief." You know, the best way to describe it is that uh, he's an Irishman <laughs> and full of the, full of the emotion of uh, of an Irishman. I, I guess I can say that as the uh, the son of Italian immigrants because I I feel the same kind of emotion uh, when I used to go into the Oval Office or walk to the Capitol. And I think I think that Joe's experiencing that. I think he's walking into the Oval Office, having walked in there thousands of times uh, to serve another president or to uh, work with other presidents that he's worked with in his his history. But to walk into the Oval Office as President of the United States, uh, I think it probably really hit uh, hit Joe Biden in, in a way that probably brought tears to his eyes. Uh, because, you know, here he is, a- after all of those struggles, after a long political career, I think there were a lot of times he thought it was not going to go anywhere, uh, certainly not to the presidency. Uh, and and yet, you know, uh, that great moment when you feel like this country has given you another shot at the uh, at the brass ring. And that's that's exactly the way he feels. Yeah, no, I, I think you described that so well. He, you know, he signed executive orders, but, you know, on Thursday morning when he gets his first daily brief, uh, maybe he's had one already, but he gets a daily brief Thursday morning, his first top staff meeting, COVID will obviously be the number one priority. But after that, what would you think would be the two or three most pressing things that Joe Biden's going to have to deal with right away? Well, you're right. Uh, I mean, there's no question his first priority is COVID, COVID, COVID. Uh, And he's got to deal with this aid package uh, because in many ways, uh, the aid package will tell us a lot about uh, the economic issues he's got to confront as well, because we are in a recession. We've got high unemployment, a lot of businesses that have shut down. Uh, His ability to be able to deliver a package that not only provides the aid, necessary, but that somehow generates uh, the kind of, uh, uh, of economic comeback that I think our country is capable of, particularly if we can deal with COVID. Uh, I think that's going to be his biggest struggles in these first few months. Now, you know, are, are there other things? Uh, you know, my sense is that uh, if he's going to be successful, He's got to go after issues that can uh, that can build that bipartisan coalition that he's going to need in order to govern. Uh, I think the COVID aid package uh, gives him an opportunity to develop a bipartisan coalition. 
Uh, I think if he did infrastructure uh, and was able to uh, provide some jobs for urban and rural America, uh, I think you can get uh, bipartisanship on that. Uh, I think it's tougher to do on immigration. I know he submitted an immigration bill, but we all know uh, the difficulties that we've seen with immigration. But but there, too, you know, if he's willing to compromise and willing, willing to deal, uh, he might very well be able to do something uh, there as well. Uh, and then, you know, obviously, uh, I, I think it's going to be important to uh, begin to focus on uh, on the budget issues and just exactly. I mean, he's got it. He's got to submit a budget. Uh, and, you know, what, what I found as uh, chief of staff to Bill Clinton is that in many ways, what the budget did is it made the president think about priorities because mm-hmm. you can't do everything. You've got to decide what the hell are going to be your priorities and how are you going to fund them? Right. James Carville. It's totally on. I, I say this to you're probably the most experienced person in the modern United States government. And I go through your resume and everything, but I'm just I'm going to get your reaction to this. It was a complete non almost complete non-cooperation uh, with the Trump administration and the incoming Biden administration during this transition. How damaging do you see that? In, in, is, does that lack of them cooperating set the administration back and doing some essential things. But what's your general view of that? Well, James, there's no question uh, that it was a lousy transition, probably the worst we've had in modern history, uh, because we had a president who didn't didn't acknowledge that uh, he lost the presidency, but then uh, his administration acted that way. And so there really was very poor uh, transition between uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Biden team and uh, and the Trump administration, uh, and I've talked to a lot of the people in the Biden team. They just could not. Uh, they didn't get materials. They didn't get binders. They didn't get briefings. Uh, they didn't get all of the necessary things that you usually get uh, when you have a friendly transition. So, what does that mean? Uh, the good thing is most of these people that Joe's appointed are experienced, they're qualified, they've been there. Most of them have been in the departments and agencies that they're going to. So, you know, they, they know where the bathrooms are. They, they know where the offices are. They know, you know, uh, generally the programs that are involved. What I worry about is generally what the hell has this, that the Trump administration do in terms of policy decisions that we don't know about that can uh, impact what you're trying to do. You're going to find that there were decisions made uh, by Trump or by others that impacted policies in your area of jurisdiction, and you're going to be blindsided. You're You're going to hit some landmines that were placed there by the prior administration. So it's going to set you back. You're going to have to do a lot of fixing, not only on programs, but also on personnel. Uh, There's no question the Trump administration tried to stack the deck by taking some people and making them career people. Well, the first thing you got to do is find a way to get rid of them uh, and to move them out. So there's got to be time uh, that's dedicated to basically cleaning up the plates so that you can get down to the work of developing the policies for the new administration. So 
you know, if I remember well, you were chairman of the budget committee in the House, and then you were OMB director, and you were always known as a, I don't know if you'd properly call it a, a deficit hawk, but but you, you did have a, a kind of healthy skepticism of running large deficits. I think I think it would be a fair characteristic of yeah. what your view was. And of course, now it, it's... People don't bring it up anymore. <laughs> Does this worry you a little bit that that we we losing any kind of fiscal moorings? Or are you buying into this modern monetary theory? Or <laughs> what's the kind of view from a well, you know, a guy from immigrant working class parents? <laughs> James, it it, uh, it feels like a hell of a long time since. Uh, you know, I was uh, both budget chairman and OMB director, and our main focus was how do we uh, try to prevent huge deficits? We were at that time we were facing what two or three hundred, uh, four hundred billion dollar deficits, and it looked like you know right. it was real trouble. Uh, and uh, you know, because we were able to to work out a budget agreement during the Bush administration, and then Bill Clinton was willing to put in a tough budget when he first went in. Uh, the combination of those agreements uh, and the uh, the enforcement tools that were built into those agreements uh, really resulted ultimately in a balanced budget and a surplus. And I sure as hell never thought once we once we got there, I never thought that we would suddenly go back into huge debt again because I thought politically it would be almost impossible to do. Well, I was wrong. Uh, you know, the Bush administration came in did a huge tax cut, uh, and then we uh, hit 9-11, then we hit the recession, uh, and uh, the combination now of, of all of that, plus what we've gone through recently with COVID, uh, has given us def- deficits of somewhere uh, between 3 to $4 trillion and a national debt of, uh, what, $21 trillion, uh, almost, uh, I think it, it's going to be about 200% of GDP. Uh, in a few years on the track it's on. And you're absolutely right. Neither Republicans or Democrats want to deal with these issues. They, they just don't want to deal with them. And as you know, if you're serious about it, you got to deal with entitlements, which is two thirds of the federal budget. You got to deal with discretionary and you got to deal with taxes. That's the only way you're going to, you're going to do it. Now, look, I understand, you know, we're dealing with COVID. We're in debt. We've got to try to provide uh, some necessary aid. I understand that. But at the same time, we have got to get back to some kind of budget discipline or some kind of five-year, 10-year track that puts us back towards trying to reduce these huge debts. Because otherwise, I'll tell you, it is going to impact on our economy. We're going to, you know, it's going to undermine our economy in the future. And it's going to be a hell of a, of a legacy that we pass on to our children. All right, Albert, back to you. <laughs> well, you know, I want you, nobody knows more about the intelligence community than you. He, uh, this, the former president, viciously attacked and tried to undercut the intelligence community for four years. What kind of shape is it in right now? And I want to ask you about one of those people they just appointed after you answer that. Uh, you know, it, it impacted on morale without question. It just, uh, you know, to have the president of the United States uh, you know, almost from the very beginning of his presidency, criticize uh, the intelligence community, uh, refuse to uh, 
I mean, this is a guy who didn't even want to read the PDV, for God's sakes, which is the presidential daily brief, which, by the way, only tells you what the hell the threats are against the country. So this is a president who didn't want to do that. And, you know, for whatever reason, you know, he stood up next to Putin and basically said he trusted Russian intelligence more than he trusted our own intelligence when it came to the uh, interference in the election. I mean, this guy was an abomination when it came to the to intelligence. So what did it do? Uh, Impacted on morale, impacted on the on on the quality of product, because I'm sure they hesitated to include stuff that the president uh, would uh, would get angry about. Uh, and then Trump actually took steps to try to, you know, plant political people in intelligence because most of the intelligence people are professional. They're not Democrats or Republicans. They're just trying to tell truths to power. Well, he didn't like that. He wanted to hear what he wanted to hear. So he started planting political people in some of these jobs. So there's a lot of work to be done to restore the credibility of the intelligence community. Well, let me ask you about one of those, because they did put, I think, this this Devin Nunes loyalist, I think his name is Michael Ellis, and they named him uh, legal counsel to the NSA, civil service protection, supposedly. I gather that that's a worrisome thing for intelligence professionals, this guy is. And what can you do about it? Can you transfer him somewhere? Absolutely. Absolutely. You take, you take, you know, uh, Nice that you're a career employee, uh, but you're not going to be a general counsel in my operation. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, I'm going to transfer you to the general counsel's office in Alaska. Uh, and you'll work. Right, and our- <laughs> <laughs> there, there are ways to deal with this. Believe me, I, you know, we had to do a little bit of that in the Clinton administration. Uh, if somebody was... Uh, you know, with somebody who was a political appointee who suddenly got put into a career job, uh, then what I had to do is you couldn't fire them, but you could certainly transfer them out. And and you know, eventually they get the message uh, and get out of government because they know they're not going to have much impact uh, and they're going to wind up in Timbuktu. So there are ways to deal with that. As so, James said, no one has yeah. more experience than Leon Panetta. And uh, just a couple national security and foreign policy questions. North Korea, the little dictator always makes trouble for a new president. He's got severe internal problems now. Does that make him more dangerous? And what should we look for him to do? Well, he he is dangerous. He's been dangerous, and he will continue to be dangerous. Uh, uh, you know, Kim Jong Un uh, comes uh, down a, a track, a long track of, uh, of predecessors, uh, all of whom have been vicious tyrants in their own way. Uh, And that's what this guy is. Um, And he's also, you know, all all of them, for whatever reason, have never been willing to really try to develop their own country uh, and try to improve its economy and try to bring it into the 21st century. So what do they have as a result of that? (laughs) They have nuclear weapons. And they're developing missiles, uh, mobile missiles, and intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, they represent a real threat to to South Korea, to Japan, and to the United States, and for that matter, other countries in the Pacific. Uh, the you know, 
The way you have to deal with them is by making clear that we're going to maintain our military force in South Korea. We're going to maintain our alliance between South Korea, Japan, and the United States. We we are going to uh, uh, maintain our our both our military presence and our naval presence uh, as a uh, as a bulwark against uh, North Korea. So they understand that if they try anything, uh, we'll blow the hell out of them. You've got to start there, and then you know you can try to pursue some kind of negotiations to see whether they truly are willing to de- denuclearize. I mean, Trump eventually found this out. He thought he could kind of, uh, you know, convince them, uh, being such a great guy, that he that uh, it was worth denuclearizing just to be a nice guy. Well, obviously, we found that was the wrong path, uh, and uh, the only way. You can deal with these kinds of tyrants is from a position of strength. Uh, and I think that's what Joe Biden has to do is make clear that we know who these people are. We know how dangerous they are. And we are going to maintain uh, our military posture in that part of the world. One more and turning it over then to Mr. Carville. But in the past, we've we've hoped that we would get some help from China on North Korea but we have our own huge, maybe greater set of problems with China than we had when you were in government. They, yeah, yeah they're a competitor, but they also seem to be, they also are an adversary. Uh, should uh, Biden continue much of the more aggressive Trump policy or was that bluster? And, and does he have to craft a more thoughtful, innovative approach to China? Well, I mean, China is, uh, is a sophisticated adversary. Uh, that cannot be underestimated. Uh, and the best way I found when I was Secretary of Defense and, and also, for that matter, uh, Director of the CIA, uh, was to was to work with them uh, in areas where we had agreement, uh, when we were dealing with threats that were common threats, work with them, but also make very clear that there were lines uh, that we were not going to allow them to cross. Uh, In other words, negotiate from a position of strength, not a position of weakness. I think Trump's failing is that it was clear that the United States was operating from a position of weakness because of the president we had, uh, who didn't understand really how to deal with them, didn't want to deal with them. So we immediately went into a trade war and we paid a hell of a price for that. In the meantime, you know, we pulled out of the treaty that we were negotiating with other Asian countries. And China has taken advantage of that vacuum. Uh, they are they are a country that immediately moved their diplomats, moved their money, moved their capabilities into other countries uh, and have tried to develop uh, a large amount of influence uh, around the world, and they have. Uh, the only way the United States can deal with China is, first of all, to make clear that we're not going to accept uh, what they're doing in the South China Sea. We're not going to accept uh, their uh, ability to interfere with freedom of the seas. Uh, we are we are not going to accept their human rights violations in Hong Kong or Taiwan or any place else with the Uyghurs. That there are lines uh, that uh, uh, that we are, are not going to let them cross, but at the same time, once you've taken that that strong position, I think you can reach out and begin 
to develop communications with them, to develop dialogue with them. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet with President Xi. Uh, look, he, he's smart. Uh, he doesn't just uh, talk from talking points. Uh, he, you know, he, his, he immediately criticized what we were doing in trying to build up our Navy presence in the Pacific. Uh, but I said to him, look, we're a Pacific power. You're a Pacific power. We have some common problems with North Korea. We have common problems uh, dealing with, uh, uh, with issues of trade uh, and uh, freedom of the seas. Uh, we ought to be working together. And, you know, to his credit, he said something like, you know, if we could work together, we could develop peace and prosperity uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Pacific. Uh, and, and I know those are, those, are, those are words, but at the same time, I think it reflected the fact that you could indeed develop communications with them, negotiate, uh, and find ways to resolve differences that way. I think that's the best approach to China. James. So, so Secretary of Defense and uh, well, new Defense Secretary has been nominated. Uh, there's been some people that are uncomfortable with the fact that he was a career Army uh, officer, was a I think four-star general. Does that give you any pause? Is, is, do you think that's a good idea, bad idea? It doesn't matter at all that the Secretary of Defense is a former career military person. And could you talk a little bit about General Austin and some of the challenges that you think he's going to be faced with as he just presumably gets confirmed and becomes the defense secretary? Yeah, uh, you know, I, uh, Secretary uh, General Austin uh, worked uh, for me in a number of key positions, uh, in particular uh, as uh, head of our forces in Iraq, uh, but also was uh, CENTCOM commander, which is one of our uh, very important combat commands that we have uh, that covers the Middle East. Uh, he's he's very good. He's very experienced. He's very qualified. He's a very decent guy, uh, and uh, and I you know I think he'll be a great secretary. Now, do I believe in civilian control of the uh, military? Damn rights. Uh, and I think we need civilian control. Uh, and a general who's retired. Uh, provide that kind of civilian control uh, because he's a civilian now. Uh, I think he can if he respects civilian control. And, and I think uh, Lloyd Austin does. After all, you know, uh, Washington, Eisenhower, Marshall, uh, others who served in the military, hell, hell I served in the military, uh, you know, they can, they can return to civilian uh, duty uh, and implement as a civilian the importance of uh, communicating with the American people, communicating with the Congress, uh, and also uh, making sure that the military responds to civilian direction. They can do that. And I think Lloyd can do that as well. He's going to face some tough challenges. Uh, we've got a very dangerous world that we're dealing with uh, between uh, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, uh, dealing with uh, problems in the Middle East with Syria, dealing with ISIS and terrorism, hell, dealing with uh, what I think is the battlefield of the future, which is the whole area of cyber attacks. So he, he's got a handful to be able to do that. And to be able to develop a capability, frankly, that we haven't done a very good job at, 
which is the ability to do hybrid war. The Russians are way ahead of us uh, in their ability to do hybrid war. It's that combination of cyber, uh, of placing uh, individuals uh, in, a, in a country that can undermine their capability. I mean, we saw what Russia is trying to do to our own country in undermining the United States. Uh, hybrid capabilities uh, are, I think, going to be the threat of the future combined with cyber. Uh, and we haven't done that good a job of really understanding how to do that. So we've got to develop our capabilities there. We're going to have to develop uh, greater agility, and we're going to have to develop, uh, frankly, uh, a force that uh, that can really be operate as joint as a joint command uh, and eliminate some of the duplication that we have at the Pentagon. There are areas we can save money in, but at the same time, uh, we have we have to commit to maintaining the strongest military force on the face of the world because. Without that, we're not going to be able to negotiate. Our diplomacy will go nowhere, and people will not listen to the United States. Good, good point. Good point. Well, I mean, just a big honor to have you on the show, and I can't wait to get back out there to Monterey and <laughs> see you and all of the people that support. But, but, but Secretary Panetta has out there in that community is is really something to say. I mean, the. the Number of the high school kids, the civic education that that that, that Sylvia and Leon put on for for that community, and the commitment to it is is just it's a stunning thing to see, and I, I can't recommend it enough. And uh, people of that part of California are just fortunate that they have you there. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Well, uh, thank, thank you, James. I mean, no one has a better record in government, distinguished record as Leon Panetta. And a uh, few have done better uh, after they left government than Leon Panetta. I do have one question, though, for you, Leon. At family get-togethers, who is the real political seer, you uh, or your son, Congressman Panetta? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Sylvia and I are really proud of Jimmy, who, uh, as you said, uh, you know, uh, ran for my old seat in the Congress successfully and now has been there. This is his third term, uh, and he's, he's doing great. Um, he, you know, he gets it. Uh, you know, James, as you understand, you know, somebody who can relate to others, understand others, no matter whether they're Republicans or Democrats, uh, that's the kind of person you want in the trenches up there on Capitol Hill. Uh, and that that's the kind of guy he is. You know, when we have dinners, uh, uh, we have debates about issues just like anybody else. But, uh, you know, the, the good thing is that uh, I think we all understand the importance of public service and the need to give back to the country. And I just have to tell you, uh, you know, I, I w- I'm proud of the time that I spent uh, in Washington and gave back to the country. And now Sylvia and I can sit back and watch Jimmy have to carry that torch. And he's doing a good job. Well, if you ask anyone who's a house of file about who are the stars uh, emerging up there, uh, almost everyone I've ever talked to will list Jimmy Panetta. So you, there, there's great reason to be proud. Leon, we are so privileged to have had you today, this special day in America. Uh, I can't thank you enough and wish you well. And I hope next time we're with you, we'll be in Monterey. <laughs> Listen, you've got you got an open invitation to come here to Monterey. Uh, when, when we can all be healthy and can drink together. Uh, and uh, enjoy each other's company. You guys are the best. 
I really enjoyed doing this and uh, my best to you and your families. Th- thank, thank you very so much. much. Thank you. All right. Take care. That is a great honor. Thank you. Great. Great. Alec, there's this company that sponsored us that's intriguing. I think it's worth a look called Fundrise. And you know what these pension funds and these big, big investors do is they got the scoop on these real estate projects and that kind of stuff where the normal person, I mean, your real estate investment is probably your house, right? And they have these sort of people that know how to do this. And you can actually, you know, get in on the deal now, like anything else. Any people that watch the show are sophisticated enough to know that, that nothing is a guarantee. But to people that are looking to diversify their portfolios that don't have the expertise, which very few of us does, to take a plunge into these these real estate deals, it, it looks like this is something that's really uh, worth a look by a lot of our a lot of people that uh, tune into this show. I know I'm going to look at it. I, I think you have a point, James. They, you know, studies have shown that portfolios with an allocation to private real estate generally delivered a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility over the past two decades, thanks to its track record of consistent performance through multiple market cycles. Fund Rise provides access to diversified portfolios of private real estate to all investors with their industry leading to easily to use their platform. James, yeah. you think I don't know what I was talking about. I've for 53 years worked at the Wall Street Journal in Bloomberg, I want you to know. There you go. Well, it look, looks like these guys are letting some shoe clerks in the poker game, which is a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I, I mean, I look, I, I, I'm, I'm going to take a, a hard look at this because, like I say, most people don't have the capacity to, to diversify. I mean, you know, somebody asks, you know, hey, we're going to build a, a condo here. You don't know enough about about it to to say one way or another, but uh, it, it gets you some access to something you wouldn't normally have. I think it's it's worth a good, hard, close look by people. Right. You need smart information. There's a lot of real estate that's done very well and a lot of real estate that's done very poorly. So this is uh, if this adds value to your decisions, it's really important. It's whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise makes investing in private real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy-to-use website, you can track your portfolio performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via dynamic asset updates. Right, sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> it does. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, you could like follow it along with people like me. Of you know, semi-retired. You know, I can I can walk and watch my investment. <laughs> on a, I can track it. <laughs> right. That's no, good I, idea. I agree with you. You know, look, see for yourself how one hundred and thirty thousand investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started. Go to fundrise.com slash war room today. That's fundrise, F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash war room. Remember, go to fundrise.com slash war room or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, when I think of the law and I think of the Constitution, you know what I think of? I think of Walter Dellinger. 
The former Solicitor General of the United States, Dean of the Duke Law School, Professor and Advocate Extraordinaire. Walter, thank you for joining us. Let's start with the pending impeachment. Tell me the answer to Michael Ludig and Alan Dershowitz, who claim a president, even if he's impeached, can't be tried by the Senate after he's left office. Well, I think the answer is not as crystal clear as the advocates on on the respective sides um, um, seem to believe that it is. But I think on balance, it comes down squarely in favor of the impeachability and removability and convictionability of a former president, at least in circumstances like this, where the president has not only been charged with impeachment, but the impeachment articles have been voted. There is absolutely no good reason why that process can't be completed. Uh, just because it refers to a president, vice president, or other civil officers of the United States may be impeached and convicted. You know, the Senate trial is something that you can finish. Um, so I, I think the answer is, um, is clear. We've done it before in the past uh, with, uh, with judges, and it would make no sense to have a system where you could go all the way to halfway through the roll call on the Senate removal and have a president shout, I quit. Right. Uh, and thereby precluding the Senate from barring him or her from holding future office, which was an important part of the impeachment clause. Well, I don't know. I mean, analogies certainly aren't perfect, but to the extent there is an analogy to criminal law and if impeachment is probable cause, uh, an indictment, and then uh, the uh, uh, Senate trial is the, is the trial and conviction or, or, uh, or not conviction, you know, if, 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 I'm, if I'm indicted, I can't suddenly say, you know what, I've resigned from this office where I committed these supposed right. misdeeds. Right. I, 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 I think that's right. I think it, and the only question which is not really relevant here, is whether you could begin the process with regard to a former president, vice president, or civil officer. That is, could you really start up now impeaching former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton? Right. Uh, Start from scratch. And that seems to me to be, that's a troublesome idea. Or for that matter, former civil officer Walter Dellinger, uh, years past the time of his service. But it seems to well, me the that once the articles were here, yes, my, my nemesis, Jesse Helms, would have, would have loved that idea. <laughs> um, but here, where the impeachment process has proceeded to a vote in the House, and the articles are ready to be delivered to the Senate, I, I, there's just no good reason not to finish that process. Now, it does, it does serve one unfortunate potential role in the forthcoming impeachment trial. It gives an excuse for some senators on the Republican side who wish not to cast their mark either way on either offending their base or offending the Constitution and the good civil order of the United States, on the other hand, by saying, well, I can't pass judgment on Trump's actions because I agree with Senator Hawley and and former and Judge Ludig uh, uh, that uh, we lose all of our authority once he is no longer in office. How would you advise the House prosecutors, assuming that we do go ahead, and I think it's almost certain we're going to, uh, how would you advise them to craft a case against Trump? 
Well, I think I would not place undue emphasis on the speech that Trump gave on the morning of January the 6th, except to treat that as a culmination. Mm -hmm. That is to say, one of the defense positions will be that um, there were indications that a plot was afoot and Proud Boys or similar organizations had already determined they were going to storm the Capitol before they even went to here, uh, before the uh, then president spoke, um, and perhaps they were already assembled, some of them in the, in the Capitol area. It's the big lie that I know that you and James have talked about often. What Trump did that is an impeachable offense is willfully and maliciously argue that the president of the United States incoming was a usurper and that tyranny was afoot in America, uh, that he had been elected president. He, Donald Trump, had been elected president and a usurper had taken over. And if you believe your president and commander in chief who says that, what else would a patriot do? He's presented the case as if the people who were storming the Capitol or the students at Tiananmen Square or those that hammered down the Berlin Wall or the French resistance. So it's all on, you know, falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater is what essentially the president the president did. He falsely claimed tyranny and people responded, some of them driven by misinformed patriotism, others, I think, criminally negligent and believing what they wanted to believe, uh, that their hero was still president. Uh, but I think you look at the whole course of conduct. I mean, I think I would go back to 2016 when the front page of the New York Times says that candidate Trump refused to say whether he would abide by the outcome of the election. Yeah. Uh, I laughed at that because he had no power. He wasn't the incumbent president, commander in chief of the world's greatest thermonuclear arsenal, but now he, he was this time. You know, I, I think, exactly. Um, uh, James you know, I, I, think our, I, I think our friends in the media, wonder, um, while they were greatly helpful to uh, those of us who were, who were preparing to litigate these issues by, by correctly treating almost all of them as, 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 as frivolous legal claims on Trump's part, I think couldn't get their minds around the fact that something was going on other than just being a bad sport and a sore loser. That was the sort of undercurrent of much of the coverage. And in fact, particularly in retrospect, and I think for those of us who were who were in charge of having to try to defend in, in, in the legal system, he now seems to have been dead set on staying in the office, if it were humanly possible, and using every device that he could muster to do so. He wasn't being a bad sport and refusing to acknowledge uh, uh, Biden's victory or, 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 or to issue, in many cases, frivolous attacks on state certification. But he was that was just the beginning. I would look for evidence that I would look for evidence. We know that that Rudolph Giuliani intending to call new Senator Tommy Turberville, in fact, call someone else and recorded his saying that we need another day, delay things for another day. That is, I think there was every intention from November 3rd forward that when January 6th came, if that's where they were, they were going to try to disrupt the proceedings. 
Yeah, I, um, I, I'm determined so, to get James Carbo in. James, are you still I'm with sorry. us? Yeah, I'm still here. So, Come Dean, if, if I understand it, to, to convict, it's two-thirds of the senators voting. So if, right. if, if Cruz and Howley and them want to say, I'm, I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to be part of this, that actually doesn't help Trump very much. Is, is that a correct reading of what the law is with that? Correct. Okay. So, However, they could vote no by, and saying, but I'm right, not I understand, defending but if, Trump. If they said, try to abstain, that, that doesn't help Trump okay, uh, that, all right, at all. all right. So I'm coming to the next question. And that is, what's the remedy? Does somebody – could they enjoin them and go to the courts that you can't proceed on this? Or, would they, or do you have to wait until there is a you – know, only if there's a conviction, then you go to the courts and get them to overturn the conviction? How, how, where's the remedy? I've always – you know, how, how do you for, get from here to there? Well, the first remedy for Trump on his, I think, failed claim uh, – erroneous claim that, that that the Senate has no authority over him. Right. His first remedy is to appeal to the senators to vote no on conviction on the grounds that he is not eligible right. for conviction. That's number one. Okay. Number two, it's um so we say, so but 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 suppose they, they ignored that you get sixty you get led by the minority leader McConnell, you get um uh, 17 or more Republican senators, and they vote to uh, convict him. Uh, and by simple majority, specify that the uh, uh, penalty shall uh, be fail, uh, uh, a ban on his future holding office of, of trust or profit in the United States. Um, now, um, he could, it could come up either of two ways. You know, he could file in the Republican primaries in 2024. And um, in many states, they would say, I'm sorry, you are not eligible to be a candidate in the Republican primary uh, in New Hampshire uh, any more than if you were a citizen of Russia. Uh, you don't meet the minimum requirements under our statute for being a candidate because you're, you are constitutionally barred. Uh, and he could then sue uh, and say they didn't have any jurisdiction over him. Could, it could be Trump versus the Board of Elections of, uh, of New Hampshire. Conversely, right. um, you know, uh, one of his opponents, if, if he were allowed on the ballot, then one of his opponents could sue and say, look, he's, he's, got, no, he's got no authority to be on the ballot here. So that's how you think it would manifest itself. I, I mean, do. He might, he, he might actually, you know, I, I think most likely that if the Senate voted by two thirds to convict him and if he were, were, were removed from um, barred, that he would, you know, fold up his tent and go away, you know, that he wouldn't challenge that. Um, and, I, and I think he would, uh, you know, I think he would lose. I mean, he's, he would have to start a campaign. Raising money from donors uh, when the legal academy would be virtually unanimous that he was constitutionally precluded from being a candidate, and he'd have to fight that battle in every state in order to get on the ballot, it would be a uh, – and I think he would lose. And they would say, you you know, the state authorities would say you can't run, um, you know, because you're constitutionally barred. So we're playing with real – 
you know, real stakes. There's real money on the table in the Senate trial. Uh, now that the major, the minority, now it sounds nice, minority leader McConnell uh, has indicated that he is open to conviction. And I would leave it to you, political pros, as to whether he would like to to put the stake in uh, uh, in, in the, the vampire Trump that threatens to eat his party. Um, so that's the that's the question I would ask you guys. Uh, what's 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 Senator McConnell's political motivation here? His political motivation is simple. He wants to protect as many Republican incumbents as he possibly can, and and help as many Republican challenges. And his motive, it, I, I think, what happened here, Walter, and I, I've talked to this. I, I think McConnell got some bad intelligence. I think he was told that there's a lot more complicity here than you think. And I think the guy, uh, I think he he doesn't want to get caught on the wrong side of this. But I. I that that's just kind of what I think. Because some, something happened. I mean, he just didn't spring up and decide, hey, you know, I've I had this certain, you know, been overcome by a sense of, of morality, of patriotism. <laughs> he got a piece of bad news. And he's trying everything he can. Uh, as you know, we've discussed this before. They have a, a, a not very favorable map coming up in 2022. And, you know, he, he would do anything that he possibly could to get 51 Republican senators. And I think he thinks this is the best way to do that, or he wouldn't be doing it. One more question. He wants to kill the king, but he wants to make sure that if he tries, he succeeds. Right. Yes. And he's counting right now. You you know, he's counting. He's a good vote. He's a a pretty good vote counter, I'm told. uh, Yes. And he's also, you know, the fact that he has come out like this, gives that floor speech, he leaked to the New York Times. There's something, you know, there's something going on here. I'm not sure what, but there's something really big happening. And I think that he knows that there's information coming out that where a lot of, you know, Trump and a lot of other people were demonstratively complicit in all of this. That That's yeah. what I think. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, think about how much more information we may have on, the, on, on, on the theme of Donald Trump's efforts to undo, by nefarious means, a democratic election. For President of the United States. There's no way that people people that know him think there's there's no way, there's no way, if I make one point, there's no way he is only putting that pressure on state officials in Georgia in in one of the five or six states that are being contested. Yeah, he wouldn't be president even if he had succeeded in Georgia. So that's right. Let's let's turn to the investigations after whatever the Senate decides on impeachment. He's under investigation by the Manhattan DA. Then now I think is far more pressure, likelihood, uh, logic, rationale, whatever have you, for some kind of federal uh, investigation on subverting the election, particularly if he's not convicted. James, I think, you know, Georgia officials are looking at it. I mean, talk through what's what's the priority there. For me, Al, want me to start on that? Uh, yeah, I think trying him on impeachment charges is the, is the priority. I think it should not be rushed. I know that um, 
No, no, but I'm saying after the impeachment trial. And, no, after and, impeachment. Well, uh, uh, I, let me say, hey, I was uh, have been counseled with the Manhattan DA's office, so I'm limited in what I can say about that. B, I have had screened myself off from any of the grand jury material. Uh, but as a general proposition, when a state prosecutor has been at work for two years, the federal officials at the U.S. Department of Justice, if they think the, the state officials are competent, as they certainly are here, uh, extremely competent, then I think the, the, the Justice Department was likely to stand down until the, uh, the let the state proceedings go first, at least on all investigation. You know, uh, let me, let me, let me the Manhattan DA has publicly stated to the Supreme Court that this in the Senate, I think there's a pretty compelling case for that. If he's not convicted in the Senate uh, of really serious, serious charges, uh, as awful as whatever they have in Manhattan, it is basically a tax fraud, uh, accounting fraud case. And, and yeah, I mean, awful things happen. He should be in an orange jumpsuit. But it's not as bad as his federal offense. So do the feds really stand down if he's not Convicted by the Senate? Well, you know, you could proceed on two tracks. Mm -hmm. The one place where federal and state prosecutors would be stumbling over each other would be on investigations of the same set of financial crimes. There's nothing in anything that any state prosecutors are, are looking at that would implicate an effort to overthrow a legitimate presidential election and even being willing to, to run the incitement of mobs to do so. So I do think that that could proceed as a um, as a federal investigation. Uh, that's a question that's going to be for the good judgment of the attorney general. So why did you turn this over to James? But just one quick final question, which is pardons. He issued a whole bunch of pardons again. A lot of really sleazy people. Uh, including Steve Bannon. He didn't pardon himself or his kids or Rudy Giuliani because someone must have been listening to Walter Dellinger who makes the point it's awful hard to pardon someone when they haven't been charged with anything. So so he he, he didn't violate that, I don't think. But boy, there were really some awful pardons. And you were taken by something I think he did. Uh, would he do something more in Manafort? Well, um, there's a very good piece up on just security um, by Andrew Weissman, who was with the uh, Mueller investigation, who calls our attention to the actual documents of pardon. And um, the one for Flynn was exceedingly broad. Everything sort of within the jurisdiction of the, uh, of the Mueller investigation, he was pardoned for. The one for... Um, um, Mueller, uh, 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 the one for Manafort, was exceedingly narrow. It only applies to the exact matters for which he was convicted. There were other matters, that, and they list them by docket number. There were other matters where there was a hung jury. There were other matters that were not uh, indicted or prosecuted. Were he still open? And I haven't yet had a chance to look at the, um, at the, at the Bannon uh, pardon, but they're very tricky to write when you're not pardoning someone for a very specific conviction. And the investigation into um, Bannon, uh, in, uh, in, into Manafort, for example, was broader 
than the matters on which he was convicted, but he was only pardoned for the narrow conviction. So, um, first of all, none of these people have any protections against state criminal prosecution. And if you're talking about fraud, uh, that's covered by state law. And if you're talking about bank fraud, it's covered by state law. Um, and if you're talking about income tax fraud, it usually is, is reflected in state income taxes as well. So I'm not sure how much these um, these folks around um, around Trump, like Bannon and Manafort, how much they have to rely upon with these pardons. James? So, so Walter, you were saying the Manhattan DA publicly said something in court. What, what is what is the Manhattan DA? Because obviously well, your client, and, but what and, is the, 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 so the only thing I would refer to is what is in the public record. Right. And in the in the Supreme Court argument about first of all whether a sitting president was immune from having his uh, record subpoenaed by a state criminal grand jury, which the Manhattan DA won. Uh, um, actually unanimously at seven to two. It was a very narrow concurrence, but uh, it was an overwhelming victory. And then the Manhattan DA had to show in the, in the Court of Appeals that the subpoena was not issued in bad faith and overly broad. And, and he, he said in his filing in the Court of Appeals and in the papers filed in the Supreme Court that the investigation involves multiple individuals multiple organizations and multiple years of various financial crimes. So that's been put out there in, in public. And that is the extent to which that of my knowledge is what is, is what is uh, in right. the public domain. Right. So, so let's go, let's talk specifically uh, before we go about uh, Mr. Bannon, who is pardoned and he was involved as I appreciate in a scheme that raised money in, under, under, false or misleading uh, pretenses. I, I got to believe without knowing off the top of my head, probably all 50 states have some law of, against soliciting money under false pretenses. It just right. makes sense. Right. I, I, if, if, if they were going to do state law, I would suggest that the DA in East Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Hines County, Mississippi, actually bring the charge because I think that Bannon would do particularly poorly at Angola or Parchment. I, I don't think he would do very well in those two prisons. And so if you had wide discretion on where to bring state charges, I I, I would go somewhere in the, in the South for, for, to bring these charges because I'm sure it that is they... Not a very appealing, uh, uh, not a very appealing set of activities to have um, <clears throat> issued fraudulent requests for funds that were not used to build a wall that didn't exist and then to be pardoned by the president who had told you that Mexico was going to pay for it in the first place. Right. Uh, that's uh, the kind of people who were defrauded. You know, we're not Wall Street people. No. They were people that were gullible enough to think that that uh, he was going to, Bannon was going to raise enough private funds to build a 3,000-mile wall. Right. I would I would do forum shopping. I think that's what you high end lawyers call it. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know they probably sent this request into most every state. Yeah, I, I wouldn't uh, be surprised. I'm sure there's some people that sent. I'm sure there's some people in Louisiana that sent money in. But well, before I let you go, I want to clear something up. It's obvious, but there's nothing wrong 
with prosecutors colluding. Is there, sir, if the, the, the Mary Garland calls the Manhattan DA or the New York Attorney General or so, the Southern District, I mean, that's that's done every day. You you, you do this yes. and we'll do that. That's nothing that's yes, not exactly. ethical. There's nothing, just want to be clear that our listeners understand that. That's not a that's backdoor right. deal. It, it, it comes up regularly because so many offenses have overlapping state criminal and federal criminal uh uh, aspects to them that they don't want to be stumbling over each other. You don't want to be interviewing witnesses uh, in a way that would trip up the investigation of other witnesses. So you have to work out some uh, method of uh, of proceeding. Right. Good. Well, thank you. I just wanted to be, be very clear on that. Always Warren, let me just one final question, uh, wrapping up the pardon issue. Would you change, would, would, would you want to adopt, a, I guess, a constitutional amendment to change the, the pardon power? Probably not, because I think the change we need to make is to not ever elect somebody like Donald Trump again. Yeah, I'd vote for you that. Know, I think we, we, we shouldn't shape the president's clemency prerogative, because on the 45th try at electing a president, we came up with such an utterly bad apple. Um, and it would be hard to know how to do those limitations that has been valued. I mean, it has been, he was not the first president to uh, to abuse it. Someone asked me, what about, when I was criticizing one of Trump's pardons, someone said to me, he interviewed me, he said, what about Clinton's pardon of Mark, financier of fugitive Mark Rich? I said it was indefensible. And it was the worst thing that Clinton did in eight years in the, in the White House. That can't be the standard that we uh, that well, we use. It was thoroughly investigated by the Bush administration, just so we know, right? Right, and they, and they, they, they found it. There was nothing criminal about it. It was yeah, just wrong. Uh, but you know, what is so bad about this set of Trump pardons is is that they offend the basic norm that like cases should be treated alike. So he will get some, you know, wonderful grandmother who shouldn't be serving a long prison sentences causes espoused by Kim Kardashian. And she's given a pardon that he he milks that for all it's worth while he's uh, to justify pardoning all his malefactor associates. But, you know, there are plenty of women serving time in prison that have grandchildren. She may be more deserving than some, less deserving than others. But the but the process that he completely bypassed. And the Justice Department is one that tries to make a reasonable decision as to whether these are the people that you know that, that should be pardoned and not just have it be a celebrity whim. It's really disgusting to have celebrity whim be what determines whether people get this executive grace or not. James may have one final. And let me just ask you, but we, we're milking you for everything you're worth. When we get Walter Dellinger, we don't want to let him go. <laughs> uh, William Barr, Tarnish Legacy. Barr? Oh, yeah. It's a shame. Bill Barr went into the attorney general's office with a, um, a, you know, a very fine reputation as conservative, very strong on executive power, really down at one end of the spectrum of unilateral executive authority. Um, But he came out as someone who had cheated. That is to say, uh, he manipulated the truth on the Mueller report. Um, 
and 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 use bureaucratic guile to uh, soften what should have been a substantial blow from that, misrepresented what was in it. I mean, that's hard for the chief legal officer of the United States to uh, overcome. But, you know, a part of the question would be what what officials who served with or under Trump came out with a better reputation than they went in? It's just a field of, of, of wrecked and ruined reputations, isn't it? I, I can't think of one. I think General Mattis came out with a rec- yes, rec- Mattis. Mattis is one. I think Nikki, Nikki Haley by Nikki Haley was smart enough to be in New York and right. set foot in Washington as little as possible. Out, so she came out. Enough was the only way not to be tarnished. James, weigh in on that. I, 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 Haley was. She's pretty pretty bad since. She she's definitely gone. Uh, but Mattis for for yes, Mattis for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking. I can't think anybody else, but I'm, I'm sure that we can. There might be somebody else, but I, I, I really doubt it. Uh, it was. It's just number. everything. Everything. Everybody that touched this right. is. And, and people. And just yeah, like if you watch Fox, like I do, the whole thing is the mob. You know that they're not. You know. You know that. What I'd say is, and I think I'm right on this. The constitutional scholar. You have the freedom of association inherent in the freedom of association is the freedom not to associate with people. And if you don't want to hire, if you know, if you put pressure on lawyers not to go to work for them, if you say you can't get on boards, you can't get in, that's completely justifiable under the Constitution of the United States. I have the perfect right to not associate with people that I don't want to. Now, I, I think I'm on firm constitutional grounds there, Dean. You, you absolutely are. Yeah. Well, I, you know, um, it was a, four years ago, a writer for, I think it was The Atlantic, someone wrote a piece which became very popular, which said the problem with the press is they, they don't treat Trump, uh, they take Trump literally, but they don't take him seriously. Well, you know, actually, we should have taken him literally. He told us what he was going to do, and he did it. He told us he was going to be evil, and he was evil. And there was an interesting piece in Politico where they interviewed the Four people, including my former colleague, Tim O'Brien, who wrote biographies of Donald Trump beforehand. And what they say is that every single thing he did, including what he's done the last two months, was totally predictable. And uh, that's 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 the sad part. Let's hope we learned a lesson, Walter and James. Right. But we'll, we'll learn it better when we have accountability. And I think that's, that's for sure. We have true. to have accountability. We, we just, you know, in the United States government, a private dropped his rifle. Man, is she or he accountable for dropping their rifle? Well, the commander in chief has to be accountable, period. Dean Dellinger down there in Chapel Hill, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and uh, uh, we'll be back with Always you in a pleasure. the months ahead. Tutorial. Okay, right, thank you guys. Take care. Bye-bye. When you don't have free time, you can't read or work on personal development, let alone learning more about the things, things that interest you. So let me tell you about my ultimate life hack for learning new things and getting ahead. It's an incredible app that solves this problem, and we highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Ben, that that thing is that that is a really good. It, it, it's you know I used to get the, some of these summaries and stuff. Th- this is so much better than the old, uh, you know, where you, you, you get these digested uh, uh, novels. You know, this this stuff 
just to, to somebody who's interested in a lot of different things, like, like many people that listen to this podcast are, this is a, this is godsend, man. This is just exactly, you know, if you want to know something about a lot, this is the best thing I've ever seen that come across. It's, it, it, it's really that good. It, it, you know, you're not going to get, it's not like you're going to be a scholar. You're going to sort of PhD in one hour field, but most people like myself and like you and other people have, you know, broad array of interests and are trying to keep learning more and more. And there's just nothing better than Blinkless to that appeals to people uh, that have a similar view that we do that, that want to have a broad base knowledge. Well, it's made, you know, you're right. For busy and successful people. That's the people who listen to our podcast. Uh, they want to get to the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with this audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book anywhere, anytime. 12 right. million people are enjoying Blinkist's massive and growing library right now. Everything from self-help to business health, along with history, which is both, James, you and I love history. You you are particularly into a whole range of history. Uh, and there's just lots of things you can get. No, this is this is a, 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 this is a terrific product, and it's particularly uh, terrific for, I think, the kind of people that uh, join us and listen in to our podcast. So I, yeah, I, I, I they've got new great books out there, Upheaval, Turning Points for a Nation in Crisis by Jared Diamond, and there's a book, Untrumping, by Dan Pfeiffer. Uh, so, uh, yeah, get it. Yeah, Jared uh, Diamond, that guy, he's prolific, man. He's been writing major books since since before I can remember. He's Jared Diamond. A lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he is. Well, uh, you know, try Blinkist out using our free voucher and share your personal experiences with your listeners. You know, with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. Now, right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Room. That's all one word to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash warroom to start your free day, seven-day trial, or look for the link in our show notes. Also, you'll save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash warroom, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. For curious minds, <laughs> serving curious minds. All right, James, we're turning to one of our favorite segments, our listeners who write such good questions. They come in from all over the globe. Let's start with Michael in Victoria, Australia, and we'll combine it with a question from Evan in British Columbia. And they want to know, will a secondary effort to impeach Trump influence the race in 2024? And otherwise, is he the presumed Republican nominee? Well, first of all, Al, I'm glad to have the, the Sun never sets on the former British Empire, so we got uh, both all parts of the empire being represented here. Uh, that's kind of hard to say right now. I mean, there's a lot that's kind of obviously going to happen between nine twenty twenty four, and I think uh, both to convict in the Senate is something that has to be done because I think it's important that if you're in the United States Senate that you render. Uh, your verdict on this, but for, for, for one way or the other. So I, I hope they bring it up, and I hope they bring this to a vote, and we'll see where it goes. But I, I it, Trump's talk, talking about forming a Patriot Party and all kinds of crazy things. So I, I, I 
you know, as Yogi Berra said, uh, predictions are, are very hard to make, especially about the future. Yeah. Well, uh, Kayvon in Falls Church, Virginia, really on point, uh, asked if the right-wing militant QAnon folks uh, are going to disappear. Is there any path forward? You know, can you bring some sense? Are they going to stay radicalized? Uh, and are they going to oper- continue to operate in a parallel reality? Yes, they will. And they won't be, perhaps, they certainly not not 45% of the populace, but they are a good chunk of the populace. And as our guest a few weeks ago, Kathleen Ballou said, Trump could incite them. Trump could get them ginned up, but he can't call them off. And they go well beyond Trump. Uh, these are people with deep-seated problems. They, there's a paranoia that America has passed them by. Many of them are racist. They are prone to violence. And I think it's going to be a huge challenge for law enforcement for the foreseeable future. Yeah, but I also think that, that like everything else, they're going to infiltrate them. And they'll never know. They'll never trust each other again uh, because they know that they're being observed. They know they're being infiltrated. And I think my guess is, is this will have a, a chilling uh, effect on them. Will they go away? No, but they're going to have to kind of regroup because I think they thought this thing on January the 6th was a great recruitment tool for them. I think they're going to find out that they're going to be under unbelievable scrutiny from law enforcement. Well, that'll be the test. We'll see if they're able to do anything in the next couple months. And if it is not turned out to be a great recruitment, but in fact a great intelligence tool, I think that's the – Central right. issue, but you know it'll. It, it's certainly something that uh, uh, we're very fortunate that nothing happened at the sure. inaugural. Uh, and let's just hope you're right about looking ahead. This is, you know, this is a question from Matthew and I'm, James. It's a good question, but Matthew, you got to tell us where you're from. That's yeah. part of what we love about these questions. Absolutely. And James, he he wants to ask you after watching Stacey Abrams in Georgia, uh, he wants to find an organization that will have a consistent presence in a state like North Carolina or Texas. He's 32 and he wants to keep this going. What are you going to tell him? Oh, first of all, I think he's precisely right. And I, th- I think what what uh, Stacey Abrams has done in Georgia, she had a she had a vision. She got to take a hat off to the most significant. Uh, non-presidential election of my lifetime with these two elections in Georgia. I don't think there's much like dispute about that. And she saw that voter registration and participation was, was is is the way. And you know that's what Frederick Douglass was about with Lincoln. That's what Martin, you know the march to Selma was about voting rights. Right. So you're right, and you know. I think in North Carolina, one of the things it can do is keep working to try to expand the franchise as much as you possibly can. Same is true in Texas. Uh, I, I don't see any reason why North Carolina can't be the next Georgia. Uh, and I think what happened in Georgia is a kind of inspiration of people like this young 32-year-old that, that sees opportunity out there. And, and that's great news. I mean, you know, you, no. you're going to have to you know, chart your own course, but you, you, you're thinking, you're thinking is really good. No, I totally agree with you. North Carolina was Georgia before Georgia was Georgia, and there's no reason they can't go back, uh, yeah. but it is going to take work. And Stacey Abrams does deserve credit. This is one from Adria in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. I've traveled a lot in Ohio. I've never been to Reynoldsburg, James. You, you, you have any idea where that is? I, I don't, I don't, 
but I will well, we'll find out. She asked a good question. This out. is about one of our guests from months ago. How do you feel about Senator Lankford, Senator from Oklahoma, and other Republicans now in the light of recent events, pending their votes uh, uh, coming up on the second impeachment and their reversal on, uh, chal- on that ridiculous challenge uh, of the Electoral College? You know, I was very, I, I was, I was really disappointed in Senator Langford when he first said he was going to sign on to that challenge. Uh, even wrote a note to his press secretary because we did take a shot at him, I believe, on this show. And he turned around. I don't give him much credit for that because that was just doing what was right. I don't think people deserve credit for doing what's the obvious and right and constitutional. What I do give him some credit for was going before a black audience uh, in Tulsa where there's a lot of history. Uh, and in essence, apologizing for his vote. He said he didn't realize the offense it would cause people. I don't think he had to do that politically. I admire him for doing it. Uh, and um, so I will give him credit for that. Yeah, I, I, I would. I think it was on some kind of a board. That, 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 but uh, uh, I, don't, I don't, don't say that unless I'm 100 percent sure. But I, I, I do. I've always thought that the guy had some kind of fundamental sense of decency somewhere in him. And I, like you, were kind of disappointed because we both said, hey, he's kind of a different Republican. He's not going to agree with us, but, you know, he's got a different tone. And it was just staggeringly disappointing when he went along with that. It wasn't much of a redemptive act to say, look, this is not appropriate now. But I think him doing that was – I, I, I think he, he was looking for some – just knowing well, how little I know him and know about him – I think he viewed that as a kind of cleansing act that he had to go through. I hope that's the case anyway. Yeah. No, um, I do too. This has to go to you, Jane. This is from now. You you can tell me if I'm getting this right. Ouija in New Orleans. Ouija sound right? I guess. W-E-E-J-A-H? <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's not a... That's not a typical Louisiana name, but I love you. All right, Ouija. good. We got it then. But they, he, he wants to know, uh, or she I'm, wants I'm to know. Ouija tonight. No, go ahead. <laughs> what do you think of Nancy Pelosi's appointment of our Louisiana's own Lieutenant General Russell Honore to lead a review of the security infrastructure following the attack on the Capitol? Well, uh, first of all, General Honore and I have common roots. Uh, he grew up, and my mother was from, as was Lindy Boggs from a place, the most beautiful place name in the United States, Point Capit Parish, Louisiana. Uh, uh, General Andre is a dear friend of mine. He's, he's one of the great Louisianians ever. And uh, I think it was a, 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 a brilliant appointment. I think he'll do a great job. I think the capital, we can be pretty sure that if General Andre comes up with a plan that gets implemented, that the capital is going to be one of the most secure places in the world. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I thought that and I've said this publicly, Fort Polk, which is named after a particularly inept Confederate general, this should be called Fort Honore. Why not ain't name it after a highly competent general that's actually from Louisiana? I don't know why we keep, you know, let's, let's we're going to get rid of this this idiocy, and let's have let's have Fort Honore. I'd be all for that. It, it, you know, it's a significant army post, and he, he's a significant Louisianian, and I'm all in for that. This is from Brendan in New York City. By the way, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a really, it's a terrific appointment. He, I, I believe you, you, you will agree, and you know more than I do. He did a terrific job uh, with the uh, cleanup uh, down there, and uh, I think it's a very, it's a very good appointment. 
Um, Brendan in New York City wants to know, how high is the likelihood that some, if not all, of Donald Trump's phone calls as president were taped or recorded for future blackmail purposes by our adversaries and, and, and enemies? Clearly, the Secretary of State of Georgia was able to do it. Look, you have to parse this, Brendan. There's several different things. First of all, White House phone conversations are recorded. Now, I don't know if they were able to expunge any of those or not. That's very hard to do. So some of those should be a matter of record. Secondly, they're the calls he made to try to subvert the election like he did to the Secretary of State in Georgia uh, and, uh, and another official down there. I'm sure. I don't have any knowledge, but I am positive he made other calls, and I suspect some of those were recorded. Again, don't know it. Finally, you raise a good point uh, about the, the about the adversaries. Uh, those calls are certainly recorded by them, and um, you know I don't know how do you blackmail Donald Trump anymore. But um, uh, there's all kinds of things that have not come out about Donald Trump that will come out. Of course they will. Of course they will, and. You know, I, I don't know, like blackmail, but you know what it is. But it, it it's thoroughly, totally compromised. And and again, uh, people have said it, and I agree with it. That it. What other explanation other than the fact that he was profoundly compromised by the Russians that could explain his behavior? Is there any other explanation? I mean, in the absence of. Say, well, it's a theory, James. You don't have actual 100% proof. Well, yeah, okay, the dog didn't bark. <laughs> All right? What what other explanation? Pelosi, Pelosi said this. Other people have said this. What could explain the way that he acts toward the Russians? I, I, I know of no other explanation, but, but I'm open to one. Well, if there is one, I'm, I'm thinking if I come up with one in the next couple of weeks, I'll let you know. Don't have one right now, though. Uh, uh, let's go to take something. Somebody does send us a letter and say, well, James, yeah, and, and you, know, had this you guys are so terrific out there about corresponding. That's a good it's, it's almost a test. Anybody who has alternative explanations for Trump and Russia, please send them to us. OK, we'll read them on the air. Absolutely. We're open to be challenged here. Right. Evan right. in Paris. James wants to know if Democrats will continue to struggle with being branded as future authoritarian socialist. Yeah, and, and also uh, of pro-crime, uh, uh, well, I don't know, what you can think of, of being communist, it, it, of course they're going to be. That <laughs> The water's wet. I mean, I, you cannot radical leftist, AOC, uh, Pro crime, you mean it's all it's all now. All you got to do is do what I do: spend a little bit of your time watching like Lou Dobbs and and Fox Prime Time or or Newsmax, which is becoming my new favorite. Or I, I listen to a lot a lot of Patriot Channel One Twenty Five on Sirius. Man, these people are all world stupid. I mean, you just say like, God damn! You just stand back and you, sometimes you just got to look at the stupidity and, and you're just in awe, like. Oh, my God. And well, at, at your behest, James, uh, I watched Lou Dobbs for an hour <laughs> last a couple of days ago. It was a painful experience. He trots out all the old uh, familiar discredited figures, John Solomon, the, for, uh, uh, the 
reporter who was fired for his phony stories and uh, he was getting from Devin Nunes and the guy who was a final whitewater prosecutor, Robert Ray. It really is. It's another universe. And it's it's uh, they're mad. They're upset. They're trying to find villains. But, you know, it's what it is. Final they get, question. They get have Mike in that. Albuquerque, New Mexico, who wants to know, we can't turn this around. Can Democrats explain fractures in the Republican uh, electorate uh, in the future? Because uh, there is a split. There is a real schism. And you can see it particularly in the House, but you see it some in the Senate, too, and you see it uh, in, in states. In Arizona, James, they are reading John, the late John McCain, his wife, Cindy, Jeff Flake, and the governor, the Republican Party, the Republican governor, are reading them out of the party. We don't want a party that has John McCain and Jeff Flake and Doug Ducey in it. Now, John McCain uh, only was the most successful Republican politician in the history of the state since he died. They've lost everything. They've contested Senate races and governorship. But that is a huge element in a number of states. And, of course, I think if Democrats are smart, they can parlay that. If if you want to keep the Democratic Party united and the the people could say, you know, it's in the Republican Party's interest to – do whatever they can to get rid of the legacy of Trump and get it to rebuild. You, you got to favor one policy that is the most important policy we can have, and that is accountability. That 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 is that is holding Trump accountable for the crimes that he has committed. And when you do that, and it becomes evident to people what happened, then the Republican Party can come back. You know, people talk about healing, and, and, and that's good, and, and the wounds of the nation. You know, you can't heal a wound until you disinfect it. And every every Republican that wants to have their party back, and every every Republican that wants to have a party, you know, you know, government skeptic, low tax, low regulation, you know, blah, blah, blah. You, you got to disinfect this wound because you're not going to get your party back until you do that. Well, as they try to run for it, run away from it, uh, and I would particularly, I was thinking of Roy Blunt today, uh, they ought to be held accountable. I mean, Roy Blunt, you know, I'm good friends with all these senators and I'm a good friend with Joe Biden. He was an enabler. And he was not only an enabler for years, he was an enabler for the first couple months or the first weeks after the election when he insisted that maybe there was fraud. So I hope they're all held accountable. Hey, James, keeping your body in shape is important, but it's also important to keep your mind sharp. And it's easy when you're leveling up your focus with Word Forest. There's a, a substantial amount of, of good research that, that, that shows that, that that is exactly the case. And, you know, when you can just, and you have the technology now, you can just do it anytime you want to. You know, when I, when I was growing up many years ago, uh, people would play these word games and things like that. And, you know, my mother was always big on that. She, you know, she believed that you should play bridge late in life because it kept your mind alert. And I, I think something like this is particularly particularly beneficial. I'm going to get it because if you're just sitting around doing nothing, it, you can just, you know, it's a great thing about technology. For all of the, the bad things it brings, it brings a lot of good things. And this is just something you can do on your own anytime you want. Uh, hopefully we get back to the point where we, we flying again. I don't know how many times I've sat on airplanes for five and a half hours and could have used something like this to, to, you know, try to stay as alert as I can. I think it's a terrific product. And, and, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of real data to back this up. I really do. 
No, there is. And I, one of my regrets in life was early on, I never got into crossword puzzles. And I watch people like our friend Ann Shields, who just are wonderful at crossword puzzles and how enriching it's been. Uh, but Word Forest is a free word puzzle app. It's been taking people by storm. It's made for word search addicts. It has over 2,000 levels, but it starts easy for people like you and me, James, and it gets yeah. harder as you get better. So you never get bored. Find as many words as possible to earn bonus coins to uncover hidden words. It's fun and even has a relaxing nature. Right. Bill Clinton's almost a professional crossword puzzle person. He can do them right without taking his pen off the thing. Now, there's a, that's a real skill, and something like this is, a, a, you know, a real, a real good mental gymnastics. It's a terrific product. I'm going to sure get it on my phone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, no, I agree. And, and, and Word Forest is offering you 2,500 coins and 500 gems when you download and play. So stop mindlessly scrolling social media and keep your mind sharp. Just go to the Apple or Google store and search for Word Forest or look for a link in our show notes. Download Word Forest for free today and get ready to flex your brain muscles. Let's let's do our outrage of the week, which is is hard. It's hard. I mean, Trump is Trump was a gift that may not stop giving for a while, but it's really hard. So there's so much to be outraged about. Let me go first. That in these dreadful final days of the worst president, I'm going to target one that didn't get as much attention if there weren't all these other things. And that was the resignation letter of HHS Secretary Alex Azar. And here's what he said. He said that Trump's actions and rhetoric about the January 6th mob violence, he didn't like it. And he it had tarnished the administration's historic legacies. First of all, the actions and rhetoric weren't just a guy with some bad words. They were trying to subvert an American election, lying to the public, and inciting a mob that attacked the United States Capitol to prevent the ratification of Joe Biden's victory. It took Azar 10 days to reach that rather tepid conclusion. As for the achievement, he took credit for saving thousands. He said maybe even millions of lives affected by the pandemic. Alex, what? We're on a first name basis just for this. More than 400,000 Americans have lost their lives. At least half of those could have been avoided if Trump and Azar had been honest, forthright, and bold and provided leadership last February. He took credit, questionably, for Operation Warp Speed's development of the vaccine. What he was responsible for, James, was the rollout of the vaccine. He promised 20 million Americans would be vaccinated by the end of December. Only 10 million were. He promised states would begin getting vaccines previously held in reserve for second shots. There weren't any. At time of great crisis, Azar, like his boss, failed. That's the legacy. For my outrage, I'm going to go back a little over 96 years, but I've got to tell you why I'm doing this. And listen, you know, I, I was not a fan at all of the 2016 coverage of the New York Times. They were manipulated by Steve Bannon and Peter Schweitz on the Clinton cash thing that they use stolen emails they, they print the russian stole they were totally you know all obsessed with the stupid email story and talking about national security being compromised and all that idiocy so i like the coverage better in 2020 but I, you should always be skeptical of the new york times i want to read an article from the new york times from uh 1924 berlin december 20th of 1924 Adolf Hitler, the once demigod of the reactionary extremists, was released from, on parole from imprisonment at Fortress L Landenberg, Bavaria. Today, 
and immediately left in, in an auto for Munich. He looked he looked a much sadder and wiser man today than last spring when he, with Ludendorff and other radical extremists, appeared before a Munich court charged with conspiracy to overthrow the government. His behavior during imprisonment convinced the authorities that, like his political organization known as the Volkshire, was no longer to be feared. It is believed that he will retire to private life and return to Austria, the country of his birth. All right? That was in the New York Times. And everybody that listens to this show, it's a great newspaper. Maggie Haveman had done some good stuff. Everybody should be highly skeptical of credentialism and, and authority, you know, when people are a great authority on everything. They blew the coverage in 2016. They blew the coverage in 1924. They had a good 2020. I hope, they go, I hope they're good going forward. But I'll, I'll always have an element of distrust. Yeah. You and I'll never agree on that. Uh, certainly what they wrote in 2024, uh, 1924 was outrageous. They also were very sympathetic to the communist revolution when it took over Russia, and they made mistakes. They're a great newspaper that has a heck of a batting average, by and large. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Also remember to check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. It's what makes this podcast possible. To keep up with us every week, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show, the first, actually the second, of the Biden administration as we continue our war room planning uh, for 2021.